Chapter Five of Red Arrows in the Night by Daniel A. Lord S. J. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Maria Therese. Chapter Five. With the coming of morning, I was a little more willing to talk with Tim about this all-important or utterly unimportant cave of his. I must admit that when in the dead of night he had sprung it on me, I had tossed it back into his lap with complete disinterest. If it turned out to be another Alibaba's cave, or the only rival to Mammoth, I'm not interested, I said. Go to sleep. We'll talk in the morning. Nobody's going to run off of the cave on a night like this. And I had rolled over, drooping down into a cave of sleep. But as I was fumbling for a tie the next morning, Tim knocked at the connecting door and came into my room. For a man who'd been playing around in a storm like last night's, and searching a suspicious ship, he'd look remarkably chipper. I turned back to look at my own haggard face in the mirror, and I regarded myself with acute distaste. "'You look fit, young fellow,' I commented. "'Now aren't you glad you slept and saved the cave for this morning?' I motioned to the bright sun. "'And a nice morning it is for caves or anything else.' He sat down in the window seat, looking out toward the sea. "'I wonder,' he mused, "'if that cave means anything, or if it's just a full hunch.' "'Explain the hunch.' I invited, seating myself opposite him and lighting a preprandial cigarette. And we'll see what it sounds like to a total stranger. It really wasn't much of a hunch, just Tim's sudden recollection that the shore of the cove held a hidden entrance to a cave. As kids, he and his playmates had putted around the opening. But so far as he knew, no one had ever explored the cave beyond the entrance. How far back it wound, where it went, how big it was, these were more than he could even guess. "'So what?' I asked, rather bored with this rehash of youthful memories. "'So nothing, maybe,' he answered. "'But also, whatever use the rest of the crew might make of it. "'The rest of the crew is not on board ship. "'Evidently they do not go to the village. "'Where are they? "'I suggest the cave.' "'But why?' I persisted. "'Smuggling? "'Sounds pretty silly these days. "'Piracy is old-fashioned.' and prohibition has long been repealed. Arms? For whom? Dope? Not likely. What use in the world would a cave be unless the sailors became tired of sleeping in their narrow bunks, and decided to sleep on dry, or more probably, on a night like last night, wet land? I still think, Tim mused while the ash of a cigarette grew longer and longer. Let it maul, I suggested. This is sure. As long as the ship is there, we can't go exploring the cave without looking mighty suspicious, and perhaps a little ridiculous. Unless, of course, we could dress in rompers or play suits and pretend we're children from the village. The breakfast bell interrupted my slow-arriving retort. Beth joined us on the landing near the profane chapel, and the three of us walked down together. In the reception hall, the valet was waiting for us, his face twisted in an obnoxious smile. "'Your boots are not yet cleaned.' he said softly. I saw Tim flush. I know my own cheeks flamed with fury. Who told you to touch our boots? I demanded. Do you mean to say you invaded our rooms, removed our boots? His shrug seemed to move the ugly weight on his shoulders. I am an early riser, he said. Naturally, when you came in last night, or this morning, he seemed, even with that soft voice of his, to punch the last two words. You left mud across the rugs. I was sure your boots must be muddy, too, as indeed they were. So I took them from your rooms without disturbing you. You slept so soundly you were not disturbed. 
very soundly indeed. It took a combination of caution and grace to prevent my slapping him across his smiling mouth. Beth looked at us quizzically. In that storm, last night, she said, softly, too. Perhaps the sound of conversation in the dining room had made all of us pitch our voices low. Even so, in my tense fury, I leaned close to the valet. I was one step above him, so he had to lift his face on an oblique slant towards mine. I don't suppose by any chance, I asked tensely, that you also clean out the guest's briefcases. Boots, sir, just boots, he replied. I shall not trouble again to do what I thought you would regard as a favor. And he was gone without another word or look or gesture. What does that mean? Beth whispered. We'll tell you after breakfast, Tim answered, and slipped her hand into the crook of his elbow. The three of us entered the dining room. The captain and the mate were breakfasting with Tim's uncle. We took our places after we had helped ourselves, English style, to the food that stood ready on the buffet. Captain Smith was expansive to the bursting point. I have been thanking your good uncle again, he said, for delightful hospitality. By midnight, I'm sure our ship will be ready for the sea. An old sailor tradition, you know, sailing at midnight. We really had better luck than we hoped for. By midnight, I'm sure the engine will be ready. And I really mustn't keep my wife waiting, you know. Of course, sailors' wives are used to waiting. He stopped suddenly and rose gallantly. Madame Leclerc had entered and was walking toward her place at the opposite end of the table. It wasn't her custom to come to breakfast. Yet today... Ah, oh, sailors' wives, she sighed dramatically. They are like prima donna's husbands, unhonored, neglected, and unsung. And the conversation became general, divided on a five-to-one basis, with Madame Leclerc carrying the five balance, and without real opposition. But as we all rose from the breakfast table, I took over, knowing that Tim would follow my lead. Do you mind, Captain, if Miss Henley and the Lieutenant and I walk down to the cove with you? We'd like to see your ship. I almost choked on that last sentence. For just as I had completed it, the valet appeared in the doorway. He paid no attention to me or to what I'd said, but he walked to his place in back of Tim's uncle's chair. Not by any flicker of interest or amusement did he indicate that he knew we had made our acquaintance with the ship last night. The instant suspension, as I watched the valet, gave Captain Smith time to heliograph the mate, and then turn his smiling attention on me. "'Really, Captain Foster,' he said, "'you mustn't think me a discourteous host.' But our ship is in such disorderly shape, what with the broken engine and the other repairs, and that cliff is so steep, muddy, and dangerous, that I'd advise you to wait until, let's say this evening? Not at all, said I heartily. We'll just walk to the cove and watch you go aboard. We know so little about ships, the three of us, that a long-distance view will be just as good as a close view. Anyhow, it's just for the walk. We have work to do. Some trifling stuff for the government." Very interesting, by the way, interjected the uncle, and very secret. Splendid, splendid. Let's meet, say, in ten minutes in the reception hall. The captain was hardy with the hardiness born of intense relief. Heavy shoes, I instructed Beth, and I proceeded to my room. When I opened my door, there in the center of the room, fronting me, almost insolently, were my heavy boots of the preceding night, shined to a polish so high that they might have served to send heliographs across a mile of ocean. The captain took Beth's arm solicitously and guided her across the wet garden. 
the morose, silent mate, fell in with Tim and myself. We left the burden of the conversation to the captain, who turned out to be a male counterpart of Madame Leclerc. We learned so much of the charm of his waiting wife that I began to believe she did not so much as exist. And he talked so enthusiastically of his proposed trip to Florida that I wondered how north he might really be intending to sail. When we reached the cliff the top of the cove, the captain's voice rose perceptibly in tone, and twice or three times he laughed so loud at some trifling witticism worth no more than a smile that I had fresh doubts. Was he, like a seaman, from force of habit, talking into the wind? Or was he talking loud enough to be heard by anyone who might be working on the ship or near the cove? Outside the harbor the waves were still pounding. A white network of spume tossed high into the air in each breaker. And there on the deck our friend of the preceding night was busily at work on that defunct automobile engine. He lifted for us a hand that seemed to be following merely a grooved routine. In it he brandished a monkey wrench, and he pointed with it first to call our attention, and then to indicate the motor at his feet. "'Broken!' he shouted. "'Becoming fine!' Then he squinted sharply. Was it the bright light of the sky hurting a brain that had been soaked with bad whiskey and dulled by a steel wrench? Was it surprise and alarm at the sight of visitors with the officers? Was it merely an effort to focus his bleary eye on the five people who were peering down at him over the edge of the cliff? "'Looks as if he had a lot of work still to do on it,' the captain volunteered. "'Well, we'd better be helping him, if we're to sail tonight.' and may there be no moaning at the bar when I put out to sea. No doubt about it, he had all the stale quotations, I thought. Sorry I can't invite you down for a spot of tea or a cocktail, but... He gestured toward the man who was now hard at the work of twisting bolts on an engine that had never seen a ship until it was planted there on the deck. Then he and the mate began the slippery descent of the path Tim and I had traveled on the preceding night. We leaned over the cliff and waved at him but as I looked down, my eye noted tracks that made me jump with excitement. I caught Tim's elbow and pressed it, gesturing only with a quick turn of my head. He followed my indication and noted my discovery. Along the shore were deep, regular indentations that dug into the soft mud of the beach, for the storm had washed down upon the rocky ledge soft earth from the cliff. There was no mistaking the marks. Someone had quite recently rolled up the beach and across the land the heavy cylinders of telephone wire we had seen on the preceding night on the ship, and the cylinder had made clear marks as it had evidently bounced along its muddy way. I know I was leaning too far forward for safety, but as I did so, I saw that the marks came right up to the cliff itself, and then completely disappeared. It was as if, at that point, some giant bird had swooped down and lifted the heavy drum of wire up to its rocky ire, or into the cave, I thought, and I knew that precisely the same thought had been born in Tim's mind. He'd been right. That cave was important. But what in the world would telephone wire be doing in an unexplored cave? The captain and the mate had reached the shore. A small dinghy that I had not noticed before, and should not have used, even if I had seen it swung in the shelter of a tall boulder. They unloosed the rope, waved up to us, and then put out toward their ship. We answered their wave, and then sauntered away, looking for all the world like three young people, with nothing on their mind but a holiday and the pleasure of one another's company. It was an uneventful day. We drove to the village on the chance of getting word of the crew, swam for a bit where the ocean rolled cold and gray up the village's public beach, ate a leisurely lunch in the tea shop, played some easy tennis on the courts, now miraculously dry, and lay on the terrace as the autumnal sun sank behind the anchorage. 
Before dinner, Tim and I made a brave pretense of working a bit on the false plans, which we slipped back into the briefcase, putting it in its obvious hiding place. We were all there for dinner, the captain, the mate, the ladies, Tim's uncle, and Tim and I. The weather had turned quite warm, and the broad windows of the dining room were flung open to their full width. Madame Leclerc and the captain bit against each other for conversation, so there was left to Tim and Beth a happy silence in which to find each other, to the uncle for opportunity to concentrate on food, and to me a social vacuum about which I could move and play with my own muddled thoughts. Suddenly I turned to the captain for another shot in the dark. "'Captain,' I inquired, "'do you believe in ghosts?' Tim's uncle winced and turned in my direction, a face heavy with frowns. "'Most certainly,' the seaman replied. "'What sailor doesn't?' "'Well, you may have the pleasure of seeing a ghost before you leave.' "'Nonsense! Stuff and nonsense!' growled the uncle. "'Perhaps,' I said. "'But if tonight you should happen to see a scarlet archer walking along the line of that rising lawn and winging an arrow in your direction—' Madame Leclerc jumped to her feet. Was it drama or genuine fright? Or was she looking for some excuse to leave us? Don't, she cried. That horrible ghost. I'm afraid of it. Desperately afraid. And she ran headlong from the room. Beth jumped to her feet, dropped her napkin at her place, and followed her employer with all possible speed. We men had risen, all that is, except the uncle, who sat glowering at me. Why did you have to do that? he demanded angrily. It's bad enough for the lot of you to see a ghost or pretend a hallucination, but to use it to frighten the women. You, he cried, in the voice of sharp command, and the valet appeared as promptly as if the word you had been his given or family name. Bring the cigars and bottles in at once. Send the butler to his quarters. My nephew and his friend, he embraced us with a twist of his head, are going to their rooms for the evening. More patriotic work, I'm sure. See that they have coffee there, if they wish it. We don't, I shot, stung with this dismissal. Go to bed and leave men to talk to men. This last clearly took in himself and the two seamen. Tim and I rose to our feet. We were seething, but you can't tell a man in a wheelchair what you think of him, even when you are thinking it with bitterness and fury. You can only walk out of the room with what little dignity is left in you, and behind the protection of your own closed door, first foam over bitterly, and then laugh yourself back to a state of normal nerves and humor. Again we sat near the window of my room, looking out into the night. Again the sky was clear and cool, an autumnal sky with a slight suggestion of remoteness, as the mist arose from the sea and the ground and bathed the landscape in a ghostly fog. We talked a little and were silent much. I think that I was almost drowsing when I felt Tim's hand grip my knee. I didn't need the compulsion of his gesture to turn my attention toward that little stage across which we had seen the archer play his mysterious scene. And there he was again. Around the little summer house there seemed to be a sort of solid bank of mist, yet out of it he stepped, clean and clear, his tall hat rising sharply against the pale sky, his legs striding in measured steps along the spine of the mound. Even as we watched this ghostly figure slipping through the autumn fog, we were conscious of the rumble of the men's voices rising from the dining-room below us. We were not conscious of words or sentences or scents, just the blending of human sounds that indicated conversation but gave no inkling of the context. Strange how one can do two things at once, watch and listen, see the swift passage of a drama, 
and hear the undertones of speech that seem to be accompanying it, though they bear no part in it. The archer had reached his spot, not a score of yards from the summer-house. As if to test his bow, slowly, with the delayed action of a somnambulist or of an athlete in a slow-motion newsreel, he fitted an arrow to his string and shot it high into the air. We could trace its course against the sky, see it rise, rise, rise in flight, and then fall, almost upon the figure that had shot it. Then, with a rhythm that was the perfection of athletic skill, he pulled an arrow from his quiver and shot it straight at us. I know I threw myself back against the casement. I knew that Tim needed no warning to do the same. Between us cut the arrow in deadly flight, to bury itself with a short, vigorous impact in the wood of the wall beyond. Then, without pause, the archer slipped the second arrow into the string, and I saw him in a single, sweeping gesture aim and fire toward what I knew was the dining-room window. There was just one scream, sharp and terror-ridden. I heard heavy sounds as of chairs being thrown down. Then, leaping from the window, I flung myself across the room, down the stairs, into the reception hall, and through the connecting archway into the dining-room. Tim was after me, a shadow clinging to my heels. The captain and the mate were standing, amazement on their faces. But Tim's uncle seemed to have shriveled to half his size. Perhaps in an instinct of self-protection, he had guided his chair around the table, so that it stood between the two overturned chairs that had lately been occupied by the seamen. The three of them were facing the lawn and the arch of the window. Only now the uncle was crouched back in his chair, his face a living mask of terror. I looked toward the wall, expecting to see the arrow in its usual place. It wasn't there. I caught the fact that one of the candles on the table was guttering, almost extinguished, by the arrow as it cut through. My eye, traveling from the candle to Tim's uncle, lighted on the cause of the uncle's terror. He was dressed in a loose dressing gown that he much affected, and the sleeve, the right sleeve at that, was pinned to the wood of the chair by the arrow, which even yet seemed to quiver from the impact. "'After him!' cried Tim's uncle, with what looked like a foam on his mouth. "'Ghost or murderer, get him! You fools, get him!' As if he had cracked a whip over our head, the four of us sprang through the open window. Without need for preconcerted plan, we fanned out across the garden, using the summer-house as our central point, and each of us taking one of four paths that covered every inch of the garden. Tim drove left, the two seamen to my right, and I straight for the summer-house. No stopwatches clocked our flight that night, but I know we made the distance in new records, especially as I jumped straight for that column structure that stood so clear and clean against the grey-green sky but it was speed to no avail. I reached the summer-house and leaped into the shadow of the pillars, which were open except for a low concrete balustrade, hardly more than waist-high, that circled three sides of the building. The stone floor was noisy under my feet, but the place was as empty as a platter lately served to a hungry hound. I looked down the slope toward the hedge that encircled the garden. No signs of an outlet there, and even as I surveyed the grounds, Tim came along, beating the hedge to his left with a branch he had pulled from a tree, and the two seamen met him, beating the hedge along the other side. We met in the shadow of the summer-house. "'Not a sign of him,' said Tim. The captain's tone was just a little too awestruck. "'Vanished like a ghost.' "'Perhaps like a ghost is just the phrase for it,' I agreed. And the silent mate uttered one guttural snort that might have been fear, agreement, or a disgust with the whole proceedings." 
Well, said the captain, as if taking command, there's nothing we can do except return. So feeling a little foolish and highly disconcerted, we recrossed the garden, heading this time for the bright horseshoe of light that marked the open window. Tim's uncle still sat in his chair, the arrow still pinning his sleeved arm to the wood of the chair. You fools, he greeted us. You fools! Then for the first time his left hand gripped the arrow that pinioned him. Immediately he screamed in fright and pulled his hand away. He held it out as if in horror at what he felt, and we saw that it was bloody red. Blood, he cried. My blood or his? We had no idea what he meant by the or his, nor had we time to ask him. The captain had taken the arrow from his hand and sniffed it. He laughed a little grimly, but in evident relief. Not blood this time, he said, just fresh, then paint. Of a sudden, an idea struck me. What did we know of what went on in the valet's house? Where was he now? Had the archer escaped there? Tim, I cried, in command, and plunged again through the window, with Tim again at my heels. I circled the house and headed for the porter's lodge, which housed the valet. A dim light was burning in his window. I raced the distance, paying little attention to my loss of breath. Bursting against his door, I lift my clenched fist and pounded. There was no answer. I pounded again. This time I heard the heavy drag of feet across the floor, and then the door was flung open. The valet stood in the doorway, his back to the light, an ostentatious fist rubbing sleep out of his eyes. "'Is he here?' I demanded. But even as I asked it, I knew the folly of my question. Between the summer-house, where we had last seen the archer, and this porter's lodge, there were hundreds of feet of lawn, over which no one could possibly have moved, without our seeing him all the way, and for that matter, colliding with him in our search. Oh, yes, he might, if indeed he was the ghost, had fled through the air, and dropped down in the valet's presence. The utter lack of interest displayed by the valet was insulting enough. How can I say, if I don't know who you mean by he? he demanded. I pushed by him into the house. How dare you, he began, as if he were not a valet, and I not a guest in his master's house. Then he slunk back against the wall, watching me with an insolent grin. The living room was lined with books. Odd setting, I thought, for a valet. Beyond was a bedroom, in which a nightlight burned. There was a small kitchen, immaculately clean, apparently little used. Around the tiled bathroom, towels hung in orderly precision. And that was all. I flung open a closet in the bedroom. I even demeaned myself by looking under the bed, at which I heard him laugh that ugly, insolent laugh. Tim had been standing near the valet, as though to grab him if he made a move. But the man merely slouched against the wall, watching me in cool amusement. That's all, I said, heading for the door. Good night. May I offer my guests a cup of coffee? I've no liquor, naturally, so I can't offer you highballs. I slammed the door behind Tim and myself, and left his unfinished sentence mocking our retreat. We entered the dining room once more through the lighted arch. This time we faced an even more amazing picture. The butler stood at the end of the table. The three men were looking at him in fascinated wonder. He was holding in his hand a long, curved bow. "'Where did you get that?' I demanded, one nervous bundle of interest. "'If you please, sir,' he replied, in true butler circumlocution. I'm a bit on the FBI side myself, if I may say so, and when I heard the commotion, I quickly decided to search unoccupied rooms. 
I suppose, I interjected, ironically, you found that in my closet or Lieutenant Tim's. No, sir, he replied quietly. I found it in Miss Beth Henley's closet. You'd think that Tim had been struck in the face. It took some handling of myself not to sag into a chair. Yes, it was possible, I thought, at least tonight. She was not with us when the archer appeared. At that distance, could one tell a tall, slender girl from a slim man in that fantastic disguise? But Tim's anger surged. How dare you invade a young woman's room after she has retired? Begging your pardon, sir, said the butler. That's just it. Miss Henley was not in her room when I found the bow. We stood petrified, unable to think of another question or make a coherent remark. I'll take that, if you will be good enough to let me have my property. It was Beth's voice. We turned to see her standing in the doorway that led to the reception hall. Quietly she walked over and in all calmness took the bow out of the butler's unresisting hand. She was dressed in a long, light-colored tailored velvet dressing gown. She was very pale, but utterly self-possessed. Tim leaped to her side. Beth, he cried, what does this mean? Just, she replied, that I happen to be an archery enthusiast, champion of the coast, if I may brag a little, when I was a senior at St. Elizabeth's. I brought the stupid thing down here, but when I heard of your ghostly archer, or your real one, I hid it in my closet. Silly of me, but just the same. Of course, cried Tim. Then, barked my friend's uncle, leaning forward as if to pierce the girl with his eyes, where were you when you were not in your room? Sitting up with Madame Leclerc, replied Beth unhesitatingly. I took command again. It's easy enough to prove. With Tim and, if you wish, one of you men, I'll go to Madame Leclerc's room and ask her to confirm Beth's story. The captain followed me as I ran up the stairs, Tim this time a little in advance. We knocked lightly on Madame Leclerc's door. There was no answer. In his anxiety, Tim knocked with insistence the second time. Again, no answer. Finally, we both pounded, and in reply heard slow movements, and then a woman's voice. "'Who's there, and what do you want at this hour of the night?' "'Madam,' I replied, "'if we may just enter and ask you a question.' I named the three of us. There was an interminable delay. Even in my anxiety I was amused as I fancied the ex-prima donna arraying herself for these midnight visitants. "'Come in.' she said at last, and we entered. She lay in bed, an exquisite dressing-gown about her shoulders. "'Sorry to bother you, Madame Leclerc,' I said, acting as spokesman. "'But Miss Henley was, she says, with you just a moment ago.' Madame Leclerc seemed to hesitate. "'Naturally,' she answered at last. "'If she says that it is the case, no doubt it is. But I fell asleep almost as soon as I left dinner tonight, and I awoke only when you rapped on my door.' She is an honest girl, of course, but I can't, in this case, do more than say just that. End of chapter 5 Recording by Maria Therese